The community is one of the main reasons why people actually stay in watches. It's a family. You help each other find your favorite piece. Hello and welcome to this episode of Partners in Time. My name is Chris Granger. I'm the CEO of IWC Schaffhausen and your host on this podcast. During my time at IWC, I've been lucky to meet so many different people who connect with the brand. From clients and collectors, to engineers, to content creators, actors, racing drivers, pilots, and so on. And I've noticed many of these people share something. They share that unique focus and a unique passion for what they do. Now, on this podcast, every week, we're going to meet one of those partners in time. We're going to discuss what drives them, their passion, how they connect to time, and hopefully they'll be sharing some of their successes and secrets to success with our listeners. Now, time is precious, so let's jump right in and get started. So today on this episode of Partners in Time, I'm really excited to welcome Aurel Bax. Aurel Bax is probably the most preeminent uh, personality in the world of vintage watch auctioning and vintage watch collecting. Sort of a hmm, passionate walking encyclopedia, I would say, into all things vintage watches. And I'm really excited to have you today. How are you? Well, thank you very much, Chris, for your warm introduction. I'm really humbled. I'm really well. Um, as you probably guess, I'm here in Geneva doing this um, podcast with you from my home office. And um, otherwise, everyone's well. I've got to ask you, Aaron, because in this last year we have tried absolutely everything in virtual. And I think with most things, from cinemas to watch fairs to car launches, we've asked ourselves, Somewhere along the line, is this going to come back physically or is it actually much more comfortable, more efficient and just as nice in a digital format? So I've got to ask you a little bit, you know, in, in what we've seen or what you've seen in your industry last year with watch auctions, what is it like? Is, is the digital a proper replacement for a physical auction or there's still something to be said for that energy in a room when people come together or is it long over nowadays everything is over the phone or digital? Well, that that alone could be a, a three-hour podcast uh, topic. Good. Episode um, one. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> um, to, to, to tell you the truth, last March when we were sent home, I thought this is the end of my professional life. Um, because to me, an auction in Geneva, especially for those of you who came to La Reserve, saw three, four, five hundred nerds on top of each other, hugging exchanging watches, talking watches. I could not imagine this ever happening without people physically present. And much to my surprise, the June auction with literally just a couple of dozens from Switzerland and, and neighboring countries that were allowed to travel, we not only had the same number of bidders, they just switched to telephones and online, but actually the absolute number of watch collectors participating increased. And I feel a little guilty, but I will say it for reasons of transparency, Philips had its best year ever last year. Mm. And if you had asked me if I foresaw that, um, I would have said never in a million years. Impossible. Now, we have to make a huge difference between transactions and everything else that goes with watch collecting, with appreciating beautiful watches. Transacting, which is eventually 
the main purpose of what you and I do for a living, has been proven possible. It's possible to buy a watch online if you trust the seller, if you know what you're doing. But watch collecting is so much more. First and foremost, you cannot have a digital watch collection. You still want to hold the watch in your hands, meaning you want to wind it, wear it, feel it, touch it, the angles, the facets, hear the movement, feel the chronograph pushers. It's a very physical, tangible experience. And second, the experience with your peers. The community is one of the main reasons why people actually stay in watches. It's a family. You help each other find your favorite piece. You give your peers advice. You share and debate knowledge. And sometimes you agree, sometimes you disagree on, on a certain watch. And this part is what most collectors miss the most. The community, whether it's with auction house specialists, dealers, collectors, scholars, museum directors, it's like going to a football match in an empty stadium. You want to cheer up your team. You want to hug when they score. And I think this is coming back. Um, the digital component will not go away, but the social personal component will remain, I'm convinced. Yeah, I think we, we all had a, a similar experience when it comes to watch fairs the last couple of years, that we all realized all of a sudden that extending what we've been doing to the digital format allowed us to instantly actually increase our reach quite massively. And I think that's something that's, that's a big learning from, you know, that traditional focus and how many people can we fit into this res restaurant or this room or this exhibition center to a situation today where we know we have all of the video technology, the VR, the AR and all the rest of it that allows us to extend the reach. Um, we've created a lot more one-on-one -on -one interaction with a lot more people, which you could never do just by traveling or flying everybody around the world. You'd never be able to complete the journey. But then again, what, what is completely missing is the, the energy of the moment, that energy of coming together, of feeling what the industry, where the industry is going and feeling the actual buzz in the room. That's completely missing. And of course, at the same time, yes, you can maintain relationships and you said you can transact, but you can't build relationships the same way <laughs> digitally as you can physically face-to-face. -face. And I think that's probably this, the same in the, in the vintage watch collection space. Absolutely. And eventually this, this very tragic uh, and, and, and uh, highly disturbing pandemic boosted many businesses to be more innovative, more digital, uh, including ourselves, um, we had to really get our act together last year and accelerate. And I guess going forward, uh, we will keep what's good from the digital world, probably travel less, um, spend less time in airports uh, waiting for canceled flights. <laughs> and, and, and yet the one-to-one -one interaction, I agree with you, is irreplaceable. Yeah, absolutely. When I read about your sort of uh, history of um, developing a career and, and getting into watches, it actually made me chuckle a little bit because I think there's quite a few parallels that I've never realized between both our paths in the sense that I think we all had an original idea of some parentally approved uh, grand career. I think yours was in, in law, if I remember correctly from what yes. you said. Um, I must admit that um, my parents were pretty supportive of anything I would do. When I graduated from high school, I didn't know what to do. And the best advice I was given is go and study law and business in St. Gallen. You may figure out down the road what you really want to do. And, well, now we know what it is. But 
it, it was simply a platform to further discover what I'm really good for. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So my, my mom was actually solicitor. So I had I did a whole a law degree as a, a two, three, and four-year-old being dragged to a lecture theatre. So sorry. Sorry, mom, if you're listening. It's not something <laughs> personal. He wasn't dragged. Spending time in libraries, spending time in notaries' offices, and eating, you know, the little sort of rice paper bits that you put underneath the seals and stuff like that. So that was my childhood. So I did the, the law thing. And then I had this, this idea that I was going to do um, uh, natural sciences at Cambridge. And I even went through the interview process and all the rest of it. And it was kind of ironic because I actually wanted to design the whole time. And my end goal was to become a pharmacist and then draw and design during my night shift hours. And then <laughs> realized one day that was probably Amazing. a little bit of a silly plan. Uh, and then I think we, you know, it really, I could really relate to two things. First of all, I think both our first actual watches were G-Shocks <laughs> and both our first proper watches were IWCs. Is that true? Yes. Um, I don't think it was a G-Shock G -G -Shock mine. Um, it was one of those calculators. Mm. Um, I, I, I discovered through a friend, probably at a too young age, James Bond. And I thought it was so cool how he had technical gimmicks and features, pens that blow up buildings and I don't know what, buttonholes that would fill more magnets on this ring. And I thought it was so cool to have a calculator that actually the teacher wouldn't even recognize as such. Yeah. Um, my parents tried to talk me out of it saying, look, this is not mechanical. It has no, uh, it's, it's not perpetual, no, no pun intended now, but this is made to become obsolete in a year from now, it was very expensive back then, and my parents were right. After six months, though I got the watch, it fell apart, it didn't function anymore, and thankfully I was given a second chance. And then you're absolutely right, it was for my confirmation, I guess it is. Um, I was granted the privilege to accompany my dad and my mom to Chronometry Bayer at Bahnhofstrasse, and it became wow. an IWC in steel. Wow. That was quite the institution to buy your first watch as well. Not bad. I think I shared that in an earlier interview. Um, they told me, get ready at four o'clock. We have a meeting with Mr. Rene Bayer at five o'clock. Yeah. And we're now going back to the early 80s. So he was a youngster. I was definitely a youngster. Um, and when I was ready, my parents told me, excuse me, how do you look? Your your shirt is is, is, um, is not uh, clean. Uh, your trousers have a hole. Your shoes are not polished. Can you dress properly? We're going to Chronometry Bayer. So I had to get a white shirt and a blazer in order to go to Chronometry Bayer as a 14-year-old. And then what was it going to be? I mean, you, you spent hours then uh, choosing or how did that go? Um. I mean, for, for, for sure, certain price levels were completely out of discussion. Um, my wrist was definitely even smaller then than it is now. And I think the one advice I remember from my dad, don't take something fashionable, because by the term fashion, it can also be out of fashion one day. So they taught me what sustainable design, sustainable quality meant. Always go for the one with the longest life expectation. And as far as I remember, it wasn't such a long discussion. I fell in love with that ultra clean, classic round steel uh, watch, um, automatic, 
um, with date. Um, today you would call it Portofino, but back then it didn't even have a line uh, name. Yeah. Um, and I still have it, and I think I would consider it one of my most precious watches. It's not the question of what it is worth in dollars or francs. It's just such a milestone in my life. No, and then I think a little bit later down the line when uh, mechanical watches started to uh, become and be your calling, uh, there was this episode where you interviewed for Sotheby's. And if I remember correctly, you were actually off to London for the very first time, age 23, wearing a suit and tie. <laughs> can you can you tell us a little bit about that? So I believe it was in, um, it was, I think, the Christmas holiday 1994, where we were sitting in the living room and I was flipping through the many watch magazines that we subscribe to my father and I, and I have to say, thanks to my dad, I discovered mechanical watches. Um, and I think it was classic Uhren. Um, mm. And uh, there was a, in the classified section, international auction house seeking specialist to lead the Geneva department. And I pointed it out to my parents And my mom said, why didn't you apply? I was surprised and shocked in, in two ways. First, if she really meant it, my legal career would possibly end there. But it also meant that she had the confidence that everything I learned back then, and I have to say, it was learning by doing. There was no internet you could consult. There were no blogs. There were no webinars, uh, podcasts, or anything. So everything was you know, on, on the job, uh, flea market in Zurich, uh, watch fairs in Zurich, a few fairs abroad in Germany, in Austria, um, many mistakes, uh, from which you learn. And she said, you know, you can apply to the job. If they don't like you, they will tell you, but you also have the right to tell them that you don't want the job anymore. So it's just a good experience for you. So I went through the interview process. My resume was half a page. Basically, high school and three and a half years of studies. So without even a degree, a university degree. Job experience, professional experience, nil, nothing, nada. But yet I sent it in with two references from notable collectors whom I knew. And eventually I was called in for a first interview in the Zurich office, a second interview in the Geneva office, a third interview in the London office, before a fourth and final interview with the chairman in the Geneva office. And that alone was an experience. And at one point I get the call early in the morning, I think the week of the final exams, you've got the job, you can start on Monday. And I had to make the really difficult decision. Am I going to give in to my love and passion being watches? Or do I become something serious like a lawyer and keep watches as a passion, as a hobby at the side, hopefully making enough money to afford here and there a watch. And I gave it a chance. Um, and 26 years later, well, I'm talking to you. It, it, it paid off for sure, even with the half-page CV. But what really struck me is, is that feeling you get when you are on that first sort of business trip, that first proper time when somebody flies you somewhere. And I remember that crystal clear because I was working part-time for a, a German headhunting company, basically. And I was at university in Bournemouth, um, second year, I think. 
And they told me, well, you got to fly to Manchester and we're going to set you up and we're going to book you a hotel. And then you got to go and, and be part of this interview process for this, I think, oil exploitation or um, automotive engineer or something like that. And I remember this, this feeling so clearly, like landing at Manchester airport in my one suit and my one tie, you know, trying to look all businessy. And then there was like a, you know, I was on the way to the hotel and there was a poster uh, big billboard poster and it basically said something along the lines of when is it going to be your finest moment and I just looked at that I've, I've made it you know you feel like suddenly this is it you know was that that moment for you when you first arrived in London you thought look at me <laughs> yes so first of all it was the first time in London um, hmm. and London still today it it just uh, it's breathtaking um, the, the, the black caps, the red double-decker buses, the sound of Big Ben, people wearing um, that literally uh, British style. I think it was a sunny day and everyone had a raincoat over their arm and an umbrella in the other one. And I have to admit, and now I'm really a bit ashamed to admit that, I felt like James Bond. Um, I felt I was jet-set. Um, I think I may have even whistled the song You Only Live Twice, Once for Yourself and Once for Your <laughs> Dreams. Uh, sort of when James Bond lands in Tokyo um, and is being picked up by the lady in the in the white convertible, I felt, yeah, that is the real big world. Now, that was actually not my first business trip because it was an interview. First business trip was when they hired me and I had to go to Vienna. And guess what? I knew so much about wristwatches there comes a distinguished 70-plus-year-old lady with a Renaissance clock. I swear, it's like if I had to read a Chinese manuscript. It was, to me, something I've never seen before. And that was the opposite experience. Like, what am I doing now? Because she came to see the specialist. I owe her a proper answer. So, hot bath, cold bath. Indeed. But I've got to ask you something else. You know, there is a connection between Sotheby's, IWC and James Bond and your love for black cabs. <laughs> Any idea what I might be referring to? Um, th there is, th isn't there the Fabergé scene? The yes. Fabergé yeah. Whoa. hundred points. Yes. Absolutely. I've watched my James Bond movies. Yes. Um, not very flattering for the auction house because basically he's exchanging the real Fabergé egg against the yes. The wrong one, and it's um, not being noticed. Any, any, anyone should ever dare to do that with a watch in our auction. I will come after him personally. Yeah, I think um, James Bond. I think it was from Russia with Love. I think the Fabergé one, right? And I think he leaves the auction house on New Bond Street, and he gets picked up in a black cab outside what is today the IWC boutique, just right in front Amazing. of that full storefront. You can actually see it was some tacky fashion shop back then. And that is the connection. So there you are. Bond, the Black Cap, Sotheby's and IWC all in one single scene. With a Fabergé egg. Fake one. <laughs> all right, so, you know, with, with all your experience now, you know, obviously you've, you've been through this amazing um, development of the vintage watch market. And, you know, really along with uh, vintage cars and many other things, we've seen this huge explosion and in interest in the in, entire industry. Um, and... I know we keep saying, well, at the end of the day, it's all about the passion. It's about the, the love for what you love collecting. It's about finding things in a collection that motivate you to keep going in a certain direction, not to be led by, by money and investment and so on only. But also we're in the context where we can't you know, fail to realize that there is a huge um, investment and monetary development in that market as well. 
what sort of guidance do you follow yourself personally to make sure that you you kind of stay on what you seriously care about rather than just going after the valuations? That's another podcast of three hours just okay. by itself. So that's part two. Um, the, the correlation between passion and money. I completely understand that watches that you and I sell can be in the thousands, tens of thousands, maybe in the hundreds of thousands, sometimes even above. And that I, I, I sweat a lot to earn my money. I know that spending it too lightheartedly, foolishly, is pretty much a sign of how little you res you respect your own work. Mm. So not that I'm greedy with myself. I, I do allow myself a treat here and there when I feel it's appropriate. But I never myself went into a shop looking at a watch saying how much it is worth next year and how much can I get in five years. That was really never my driving force. The question is more, how long will it make me happy? And I accept completely any collectors uh, out there saying, well, when I buy a watch, it's likely and possible that in a few years from now, I change my taste, I look for something different. And then comes the question, well, what is it going to be worth when I resell it? So when you buy a watch for 100000 and you know that when you resell it five years down the line, it's 20000 I understand that this collector says, sorry, there's something wrong here. I can't do this. I would understand, really. Anyone working for their money, they, they have to ask their question. Similar to when you buy a house. You love your house, but you can't pay $3 million when you know it's worth $1 million. Now, the majority of collectors I talk to actually reason quite similarly. They don't want to make money. They want to know what's the risk to lose money. And when you work hard for your money, I think that's a reasonable um, and, and very fair uh, point of departure. And this is why it's been such a wonderful ride for many collectors, because eventually, not only were they given the possibility to buy either brand new or vintage, a great watch, wear it for three years, wear it for five years. There have been men who said, look, um, I have another kid. We need a bigger car. We need a bigger house. Um, my kids go to college. I need to sell something. Those who go into this only with the aim of making money, the so-called spec collectors, I've, I've never seen anyone finding happiness. They, 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 they lost trust with the boutiques that gave them a limited edition, um, sometimes even with the owners, the shareholders, the chairmen. They're, they're not very authentic, uh, perceived authentic in the community. Um, it's like if they would speak a different language. So protecting your investment, great, but only going after the money, I think, yeah, go, go and buy bitcoins or, or speculate on the stock market. I think it will give you more satisfaction. Probably. And of course, also, you, you have this duality in the market between, you know, the, the, the collectors of something and the people who are in it for the joy it brings them in collecting watches, sneakers, cars, apparel, whatever it may be. But then you do have um, a situation sometimes where the speculative buying and bot technology and, and collecting becomes so aggressive that it 
kind of spoils the fun. Or at least at this point, you know, when you as a as a collector who's seriously passionate about owning something, basically feel there's no hope that you can ever buy anything at retail and you do have to go to the secondary market and pay a huge premium just to get your hands on the latest release there comes a point where it becomes i think difficult to enjoy your your passion to the same extent yes now now first and for, foremost um that would be the third podcast what is a collector is a collector someone who has 20 watches maybe maybe not i think it depends with what mindset he's approaching this journey is it just to say on uh, in his club or friends hey i've got 20 great watches all limited editions i'm a cool dude or is it the pure pleasure of the mechanics the craftsmanship the history the complication the the the, the uniqueness and if you were one day you come please to geneva and we sit over a few watches you will say well Aurel, i can't get it what is actually the the thin line, the red, the thread in your collection. There isn't. There isn't. The one thing they have all in common is they make me happy. Um, size, brands, functions, vintage, all different. It's it's a it's a fruit salad. Uh, there's there's absolutely no. I'm not a brand or reference collector. So, but but am I thinking watches when I wake up and thinking watches when I fall asleep? Yes. So does that make me a collector? Probably, um, hopefully. Um, so the, the definition of collector has changed an awful lot. Another point I meant to say before when you say that, that the rise of the market, I think we've seen several things happening in the last 10 or 20 years. Of course, we've seen a Rolex Daytona make close to $18 million. And you can scratch your head and say, explain me this, please. First, I really believe since, especially since 2008 and now with the pandemic as well, the trillions of dollars that the feds are pumping into the economy, this money, though it is meant to support the economy, well, it will inevitably in one way or another also end up in our market because every dollar that is earned is spent and it goes from the plumber to the doctor to the lawyer who helps the doctor until the lawyer buys himself an IWC or anything else. And my feeling is that the community has grown, money has lost some of its value, and therefore I think it's very natural to see that the art market as a whole, I mean, look at the paintings. Now we have, of course, NFT uh, paintings in the tens of millions motor cars, rare vintage wine, um, design furniture. You see many of these limited markets, by limited, I mean limited supply markets, flourish at this moment. Yeah, absolutely. I think what I was trying to get at a little bit for us as a, you know, as a brand as well, um, it's, it's really to distinguish between um, clients who are looking for, for watches to, to own them for at least a certain period of time and people who are really looking for a, a resale project with a, with a quick turnaround in the secondary market. And, you know, I, I knew, for example, when at the end of February we were launching the tribute to 3705, which was our little pilot's chronograph in, in Serotanium, 41 millimeters, very closely related to the original 1994 uh, 3705, which I think you've auctioned one of the uh, Gunther Blumlein collection huh, back in yes. the day. Yes, that was a, was a fierce race. 
unbelievable. Yes, uh, and, a, and a unique story you know, of, of Günther's uh, collection, a man who's so central to IWC's history, definitely. But when we when we did that auction, uh, when we did that launch, I knew that we with the initial quantity available, there was going to be a, a very quick response and a very quick run. And and you want to make sure that you you give access as much as you can to people who genuinely want to buy and own the watch. And you don't disappoint all of your clients and actually being uh, attacked by a bunch of bots very quickly who within seconds snap up watches with the sole intent to resell them on the secondary market as a profit. I think that's that's really why I sometimes think when we look at the, the, the sneaker scene today and you're literally in a situation where despite all of the raffles and all of the registration process for all of the highly desirable models, the, the chance that you're actually going to be able to buy something in a store at retail price is close to zero. And right? so you know already if you want to enjoy products like that, you will have to go to StockX, you will have to go to the secondary market or even Sotheby's now who are auctioning off uh, Jordans at $60,000 plus. Uh, and, and that, I think there is a level, is there, there's a point where that takes the, the, the fun out of the, the chase a little bit because if you're already starting from a point where you know you haven't got a chance it it you know the the the, the collecting uh, joy i think is somewhat hampered um it, it it is very difficult and i i particularly want to give a shout out to all the staff in the boutiques because what less pleasant can there be in the life of a salesperson that has to say sorry no um, no matter if you work at Hermes and there's apparently some handbags that go for double of soi-disant retail price, mm. um, they're limited edition motor cars, um, there, there, there's lots and lots of watches that are unobtainable. I find it actually really uncomfortable to receive myself phone calls can you introduce me to the CEO of such and such brand? Mm. I want to get that watch at retail. I said, if you want it, you may maybe pay 50% more and you have it. And people who are really well paid to spend their time hunting a watch that maybe had for two or three or 4,000 francs less versus retail, I'm like, you, you lose more money by not working in your job than what you could gain uh, hunting down and harassing stuff. And it's, it's not healthy. Now, I understand anything handmade cannot be replicated in millions, and I understand that whether you stitch a handbag or make a complicated watch, you cannot make them in in unlimited quantities. It's it's part of the the, the reality today. Um, we have to accept it. Hmm. But let's talk a bit, little bit about uh, vintage IWC, and maybe as a starting point, uh, I want to quiz you on on this uh, Günther Blumlein thirty seven oh five. Do you remember the auction and do you remember the story? So it was in New York. Um, I think, and now one thing that is really shocking is how fast time goes by. I would have thought it was in 2018. Yeah, that Am sounds correct? about right. Yeah, that sounds about right. So it was the, 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 an auction we um, co-hosted with um, uh, the Rake and Revolution. It was, um, I think, called Style, Timeless Watches and How to Wear Them. So we paired watches with a certain uh, dress code, casual, smart, um, casual, formal, Etc. And often people ask me, so how do you find the watches? And I often say, actually, it's not us who find the watches, it's the watches who come to us. And this watch here came to us without us, A, being aware it existed, B, knowing where it was. And it was a wonderful 
consignment process because it wasn't competitive. I didn't have to uh, travel. And we were able to focus on what I, as a, as, as a watch lover, find essential. That means the history, the promotion, the marketing. And the watch was prominently featured. A lot of people wanted it. But by all due respect, never did I think that the watch would make, I think it made over $50,000 uh, back then. Yeah, it was 90-odd, I think, in the end. We'll check. It's, first, first of all, the 3705, especially in the black ceramic um, case version, is a brilliant watch. Um, that watch was probably, I would say, 10 to 15 years ahead of so many other sporty black watches that today are so common. Mm. Um, I think it was the first... Um, Full calendar chronograph, um, automatic uh, for sure. Uh, today, small, 39 millimeters. Um, mm. Back when it was launched, uh, it was a little too big for me, to be honest. Um, I remember the first time seeing an IWC pilot chronograph was the sort of Meccano Quartz model from the 90s, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Um, I couldn't tell you the reference now. Um, but... Today, I think it's a, it's it's absolutely a must-have for a collector. This is this is a milestone. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I want to ask you a little bit from, from your perspective. You know, we have a, over 150 years of history at IWC, but I often hear people making the connection when it's about what is really truly IWC. We very often venture into these kind of very pure engineered instrument watches that are no nonsense, clarity in the dial, and sort of real robust technical content. Is, is there an era or period or, or design stream within IWC where you think from your perspective that was really sort of the the, the golden age when the, the DNA that people relate to with IWC today are really referring back to? Now, is IWC what? Elegant, pilot, or water? What, what, what is it? And to me, this is all the same. It's about engineering, about authenticity, there's always a degree of humbleness, if I may say. It's yeah. probably very Swiss-German Schaffhausen, kind of like, don't show off as much as, you know, the blingy south of the Alps. Um, it's, of course, also those incredible self-winding movements, the Peloton bi-directional self-winding movements that IWC had in the 50s, I think. Um, and, and it's also a technical DNA point of departure, um, no nonsense. You took, you said the word before. Um, there's a bit of Swiss, well, not a bit of Swissness. I mean, a bit of Swiss humbleness, um, yeah. that, 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 that is in IWC. I probably think you're one of the very few brands who can probably say, I would, I'd be curious to ask you that question. I would just guess since it's founding, IWC made more steel watches than gold watches. Oh, yeah, for sure. And by steel, later, of course, you have ceramic, you have titanium, but I would say industrial metals versus precious metals. Yeah. So again, inner values versus appearance. Um, yeah, also technical metals versus precious, precious metals is, yeah. is clearly, clearly that way. So my favorite period starts anywhere in the 30s and goes pretty much all the way. 
Talking about the Schaffhausen spirit, um, I picked up a Watch International magazine, which was our in-house magazine from somewhere in the 90s. And it had an intro text about what IWC really stands for, and it talks about these engineering values and all the rest of it. But then there, there comes a sentence that really struck me today, which said, if the world ever was to end, come to Schaffhausen, because everything here happens two generations later. <laughs> I thought, wow. That's not really the advertising headline for a forward-thinking watch company. But, you know, that, that was the 1990s. And I just loved that attitude. Come to Schaffhausen. Everything is two generations later. <laughs> it's, it's, well, it makes both of us laugh. Um, you know, I know you have to be innovative. You have to be groundbreaking. But I think especially in challenging times, people are looking for solid, proven values. Yeah. Um, being innovative is great, but this, this kind of like this, think, think of somebody holding on to a branch of a tree. Are you rather taking the thick solid one or the sort of slightly, the, the rotten one? <laughs> it may hold, it may not hold. And collectors watches in general, I think in those challenging times are actually considered a pretty solid, classic proven asset class mm. i don't want to talk about investments but it's and and let, before i wanted to say it if you would have bought in 2000 for a million dollar a basket of great swiss collector's watches a basket of international contemporary artists mm. um, a basket of incredibly rare motor cars much to my delight though you read always about the world records at phillips and elsewhere the watch basket would have performed the least. Mm. And what do I mean with that? I'm so happy because I would sleep, I'm sleeping much better knowing that maybe a rare collector's watch had on average a 10% value increase over the last 20 years, but not a single bump in the last 20 years. And many more speculative markets have had more of a roller coaster. Uh, journey so watches and especially iwc that's sort of slightly classic approach classic uh, nostalgic approach to certain things are probably not unhealthy mm. no it's a little bit like a, a timeless design as well you know we're obviously in our industry and in, in very much in what we do we aim at creating things as you described with the portuguese that are beautiful and well proportioned in 1940 and are then continuously perceived as beautiful all the way through the ages and they don't go into massive fashion cycles which always come with massive out of fashion cycles as well and i think the same for the speculative markets you're seeing these bubbles you're seeing massive increases but then inevitably at some point you have the massive crash and that's i think where the watch industry is obviously a better haven giving strong a solid uh, performance over a longer period of time and hopefully creating things that people will enjoy not just today and not just tomorrow but in generations to come on that bombshell Ariel, thank you so much for joining this episode of Partners in Time today, I hope that do you have an idea when you're going back to sort of physical auctions this year? So we have currently scheduled, and thanks for asking, um, our Geneva uh, May auction, 7th and uh, 8th uh, in Geneva at La Reserve. The catalog will be available online in the coming days, maybe even hours. It all depends what the Conseil Federal, the Swiss government, announces this afternoon. What kind of gatherings are permitted, social distancing, masks, um, we'll see. But as you have said it earlier on, we now know how to do it online. 
um, with a live auctioneer, of course, several. We have four auctioneers lined up for this uh, spring season. I'd love to welcome a few collectors, um, any of the listeners uh, here. So let, let's let's keep our fingers crossed that we get a grip on this pandemic. Absolutely. I hope you can go ahead with it as soon as it's safe to do so. I wish you all the best for that return to that new mixed reality of digital and physical. And of course, I hope that uh, you and the team have a bumper year this year as well with the recovery following what you already did really, really well last year. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you for being part of this podcast and I'll see you again very, very soon. Thanks very much, Chris. Stay healthy and hope to see you soon. All the best. Thanks Cheers. for having me. Bye-bye. This is the Partners in Time podcast. Make sure you subscribe to never miss an episode. If you want to find out more, visit iwc.com and you can, of course, follow us on Instagram. It's at iwcwatches. My Instagram is at chrisgrangerhair. Make sure you tune in. Speak to you soon. Bye.